I'm David Perry. In this, the second podcast in my Practical Ethics series, I'll focus on critical thinking, a deliberate effort to reason clearly by identifying and avoiding psychological biases, logical pitfalls, and other errors in judgment. It's a kind of mental discipline requiring diligent commitment and practice. In any particular field, it requires expertise in that discipline to appreciate what counts as relevant facts, adequate evidence, and good methodologies. But there are also broader concepts and skills that can improve critical thinking in many other settings. Critical thinking is not always appropriate or helpful, for instance, in appreciating music, poetry, natural wonders, love, humor, or spontaneous creativity. And excessive use of critical thinking about the behaviors and decisions of one's partner or spouse could easily undermine that relationship. But in most other contexts, critical thinking can be a powerful and vitally important tool in listening, reading, speaking, and writing. And it's certainly crucial to making good ethical decisions. So consider some insights from psychology and sociology. First, critical thinking can be hampered by the inertia of traditional customs or organizational procedures. Routines are good and necessary for human flourishing, but automatically resorting to the way we've always done it can also reinforce sloppy thinking, a lack of creativity and innovation, and an inefficient use of time and resources. A second barrier to critical thinking is misplaced deference to authority. People often accept ideas purveyed by authorities, genuine or otherwise, without questioning whether those ideas make sense, or even whether the speaker or writer is qualified to be an authority on the subject. Some studies have even shown that most people will obey authority figures even when asked to do things that violate their conscience. A third problem is connected with those in power, namely an assumption of omniscience. Some people who become influential leaders tend to assume that all of their beliefs are true and their judgments sound, that they must be geniuses to get where they are. Such a tendency can be reinforced if their subordinates continually praise their wisdom in order to curry favor. Fourth, we sometimes see only what we're looking for. This is partly the mind's effort to work efficiently, to focus only on what's most important and ignore extraneous inputs or noise. But exclusive focus on a goal or task can cause us to miss important elements of the big picture. A fifth and related problem is known as confirmation bias. So when we've tentatively concluded something to be true or made a decision to do something, we tend only to gather or notice information that confirms our conclusion or decision rather than seeking information that might contradict it. Consider, if someone is biased against women or against particular racial, ethnic, or religious groups, he or she tends only to notice instances of stupid or irresponsible behavior on their part, rather than evidence of intelligence, integrity, or other admirable qualities. Sixth, we're prone to making arbitrary distinctions between us and them, which can result in unfair denial of their basic rights and needless and destructive aggression against them. Seventh, our minds are selective about which events we remember, and when two or more actions or events are correlated, we sometimes infer a causal relationship between them where there might have been none.
These factors can lead to the telling and writing of sloppy history from which we can't learn good lessons. Eighth, we tend to perceive coincidental events as uncanny, perhaps even supernatural, in part because we're unaware of the actual probability of unrelated events occurring in what we perceive to be a meaningful pattern. This can lead us to place unwarranted stock in paranormal claims and superstition. And finally, we sometimes have irrational fears of a slippery slope. We may worry that allowing any one of our most basic beliefs and values to be questioned could result in the collapse of our whole worldview, our religious faith, and so on. But this fear can prevent us from identifying and abandoning any number of truly ridiculous beliefs and misguided values that we hold uncritically. Next, here are some insights from logic, the discipline of analyzing and evaluating arguments. An argument is defined as any group of statements, one or more of which, called the premises, are offered to support, justify, or provide evidence for another statement, called the conclusion. Arguments play a fundamental role in our belief and value systems, in speeches and articles attempting to persuade us to accept certain ideas, and in all kinds of reasoning, both good and bad. Here's some questions to help you evaluate the quality of arguments that you're likely to, to encounter in various contexts. One, what experience or expertise does the author or speaker have in relation to this topic? Is it adequate to qualify them as a relevant expert? Two, am I at risk of accepting their ideas uncritically because I'm emotionally attracted to the person or their cause? Three, does the author or speaker have a, any reason to push a particular agenda, to drive toward one outcome at the expense of careful deliberation about alternatives? For instance, do they have a financial interest that could undermine their objectivity? Or have they state their reputation on a certain view and might worry that reconsidering it would make them look foolish? If a bias like that is plausible, then we need to be especially careful not to be led astray by this author or speaker. Four, on the other hand, we need to avoid committing ad hominem fallacies ourselves. In other words, don't let someone's interests or questionable character lead you to evade an important issue they may raise. Am I tempted unfairly to discount this person's ideas because I dislike their attitude or their cause? Five, is the author or speaker simply expressing a series of unsupported statements or emotionally charged innuendos and warnings? Or are they providing reasons or evidence to support their claims? In other words, providing clear arguments that can be analyzed logically. Are they assuming any unstated claims or values that we need to identify in order to evaluate their whole argument? Six, what kinds of argument is the author or speaker employing? Is it deductive, inductive, or both? If deductive, is the argument valid? In other words, if we assume that the premises are true, must the conclusion follow necessarily? And if it's valid, is it sound? In other words, are the premises true? Or if the argument is inductive, is it strong? In other words, if we assume that the premises are true, will the conclusion be over 50% probable? And if it's strong, is it also cogent? In other words, are the premises true? And seven, is the arguer committing any informal fallacies? For example, are they trying to distract their audience from an important issue that they don't want to face? 
Have they carefully defined any terms that could be misunderstood? Are they using key terms in sloppy or inconsistent ways? Are they missing the point of an opposing argument? Are they drawing irrelevant or overly sweeping inferences from the evidence they cite? Are their cause-effect claims plausible or doubtful? Are the analogies they're using adequate or weak? Are they insightful or confusing? Are they using probability or statistics in mistaken or misleading ways? Are they completely ignoring alternate sources of data or methods of investigation that might cause us to doubt the strength of their arguments? And do their empirical hypotheses and arguments stand up well in light of scientific methods and widely accepted scientific findings? Finally, let me recommend a couple of great books that go much deeper into points that I've only briefly mentioned in this podcast. Carol Tavris and Elliot Aronson, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, Why We Justify Foolish Beliefs, Bad Decisions, and Hurtful Acts, and Theodore Schick and Louis Vaughn, How to Think About Weird Things, Critical Thinking for a New Age. This is David Perry. I hope you'll visit my website, practicalethicsinstitute.com. Join me next time when I tackle the question, are there any objectively true moral principles? And thanks for listening.